This week, the fallout continues from Attorney General Bill Barr's unprecedented decision to dismiss the DOJ's case against Michael Flynn. Meanwhile, on Thursday, the Supreme Court unanimously overturned the federal fraud convictions of two members of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's administration for their roles in the infamous 2013 Bridgegate scandal. Also on Thursday, charges were finally brought against a white father and son in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old African-American man who was shot to death while on a jog through his hometown in suburban Georgia. I talk about all this and more with Ann Milgram on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're making a clip from the most recent episode available in the Stay Tuned feed. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And now, college students with a valid .edu email qualify for a special discount. Head to cafe.com slash student and sign up at a special rate. Again, that's cafe.com slash student. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. There is finally a, a bit of closure on another sort of sensational criminal case from the last few years involving Bridgegate. The Supreme Court, in a case called Kelly v. United States, last week ruled unanimously that the convictions of two people who were senior officials in the government in New Jersey could not be prosecuted under a couple of different statutes. Now, you're from New Jersey, so... (laughs) I am from New Jersey. You're you're from New Jersey, too. I am also. so, And and also, the particular structure that is at the heart of this case is the George Washington Bridge, which I've been on many times. In fact, I was on the George Washington Bridge just this past Sunday on Mother's Day going to see my mom. And everyone in the world doesn't remember what the facts of the case are. So recall that there, once upon a time, was a governor in the state of New Jersey named Chris Christie, who's a pretty hardball guy, had also been the United States attorney in New Jersey, which will be interesting when we discuss this in the details in a minute. But he was trying to get bipartisan support for his reelection campaign in 2013. And he was trying to get Democratic mayors to support him. And one mayor in particular is the mayor of Fort Lee, who is a Democrat. And he was trying to get an endorsement from the mayor of Fort Lee. The mayor of Fort Lee said no. And so in what everyone acknowledges, even the Supreme Court acknowledges, is a bit of awful retaliation. Some people who worked in the, in the administration, including his deputy chief of staff, Bridget Ann Kelly, and the Port Authority deputy executive director, William Baroni, and Baroni's chief of staff, David Wildstein, concocted a little bit of payback. And that was on the 12 lanes of the George Washington Bridge, for decades and decades, Nine lanes have been dedicated, and this might go over the heads of some people who are not familiar with the tri-state area, but let me just try to explain it so you understand what's at issue. Of the 12 lanes, nine lanes have always been dedicated to the various highways and byways, as they say, uh, coming in and out of that area. But three lanes were always dedicated to the town of Fort Lee, because it's a small town, and that's where the mouth of the George Washington Bridge is. And so people who are trying to get across the bridge to go into the city from Fort Lee would not be you know, piled up in traffic for hour after hour after hour, and that has worked generally very well. And then under the guise of trying to engage in a traffic study, the people that I mentioned orchestrated a scheme in which they reduced the three lanes for Fort Lee to one lane, and they did it for multiple days. And it had the effect of clogging traffic in Fort Lee and causing an unbelievable amount of heartache and headache for the mayor and the citizens of Fort Lee. Traffic backed up, you know, well back into the town, There's some famous emails in the case that were brought forward in the trial uh, where Bridget Ann Kelly writes to David Wildstein 
after the endorsement was not forthcoming, quote, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. This was all terrible behavior. The Supreme Court actually said the evidence the jury heard no doubt shows wrongdoing, deception, corruption, abuse of power. They do not treat the behavior with kid gloves, but the Supreme Court ultimately says just because it was bad, just because it was corruption, just because it was an abuse of power, the particular statutes in the federal code do not criminalize the conduct. Good decision or bad decision, Anne? I think the decision is consistent with Supreme Court precedent. We can talk about that more in a minute. But I think, you know, that there are sort of two different conversations here. One is, is it consistent with the view that the Supreme Court has consistently taken that they don't get involved in sort of the regulatory schemes of states? And I think the answer is yes. And that they see this as a regulatory act, that the states basically regulate you know, what cars go across that bridge, they decide, is it one lane for Fort Lee? Is it three? And that in order to actually prosecute political corruption, you need that the people who are charged would have need to have either gotten money or property. And by property, meaning that they made the bridge, they sold some of the bridge for, for private gain, or that they themselves got a payoff or money. And there's no evidence of that. There is some evidence that they ended up having to hire another toll collector in order to basically pull off this closing of the th- going from three lanes to one lane, that they needed another toll collector in case it's so it's so classic in case the toll collector at the one lane um, had to take a break, then they needed somebody else to to be available. And so they have to expend some extra money. And so that is a money expenditure. But what the Supreme Court ultimately finds is that 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 money expenditure is not the main goal, that the main goal really was political payback and that they did this through a regulatory scheme and that the purpose of it was not to gain either money or property for the people engaged in it. Now, it is a really, like, it is consistent with the Supreme Court precedent, but the bigger question, I think, is, you know, where is the Supreme Court precedent now on federal corruption prosecutions? Because it is the latest in a long line of cases in which the Supreme Court has basically said that they do not want to be involved in state-level corruption in many ways. They have really, really cabined the extent of federal authority to bring political corruption cases. And I personally think that's a big problem, and we can talk about why that is. But I personally think the end result of where the court is now on political corruption with federal statutes is not the place that we want our Supreme Court to be. And frankly, yeah, it's, really a it's going to allow... It's really a federalism case. We saw it with a unanimous decision with respect to the former governor of Virginia, and you see it in this case. And again, it's worth bearing in mind that the court does not endorse or bless the behavior here. In fact, the court thinks it's odious. It just can't be And actually, the courts the court use very strong language for a time that they're making a decision that actually does not— That vacates the convictions. Yes. They, right? Their language was particularly strong, and I, I'm sure that was the product of— internal discussions and that the justices wanted to make clear that they think it's wrong, but that yeah, I mean, they the just don't the, think it's under. The end of the decision, it ends with this language, for no reason other than political payback, Baroni and Kelly used deception to reduce Fort Lee's access lanes to the George Washington Bridge and thereby jeopardize the safety of the town's residents. But then they go on to say, but not every corrupt act by state or local officials is a federal crime. They're basically saying we're throwing up our hands this is a job for the locals. There's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, that's the breaks. These two statutes, Section 666, which is about theft of government property, and Section 1343, which is wire fraud, which requires a scheme or an artifice to defraud of money or property, you just can't do it under those statutes. And 
be as creative as you want. And maybe you in good faith were trying to prevent bad behavior and hold people accountable. It just doesn't work here. And too bad, right? They're, they're prepared to accept some level of corruption, perhaps not. And maybe you can address this a little bit, given your time as the attorney general. They want to throw up their hands and accept some amount of corruption that can only be prosecuted by the locals if there's an applicable law. But they may be a little bit naive. We've been using the, I think I've used the word naive in the last three episodes of this show. It's the new extraordinary. <laughs> because there are political dynamics, depending on the state and depending on who appointed whom and everything else, that might make it difficult for local officials to prosecute corruption. I saw that in New York. We brought a million, yeah, let's talk about that. We brought yeah. a million federal public corruption cases. We didn't run afoul of this issue. And this was like a, a pretty aggressive theory. I'm not sure everybody would have agreed with this theory on, on how you figure out what property is, uh, given how clear the statutes are. But if we in New York left it to the local officials, to so the state attorney general and the DA's offices, nobody would have been prosecuted for anything, basically. Right. What do you, th yeah. what do you so think let, about that dynamic? Let's talk about all that. Yeah. So, so first, let me just read you one of the quotes from the Supreme Court decision that I think is important, which is, quote, federal prosecutors may not use property fraud statutes to set standards of disclosure and good government for local and state officials, right? Which is basically saying, you know, we're giving a lot of power to the states and the locals that they get to set their regulatory schemes and it, they can abuse those regulatory schemes. That's for the states to handle is essentially, I think, what, what comes out of it. I do want to say one thing about how strange of a case this is, because I think the importance of this decision is in the context of where the Supreme Court has been in cases like the McDonald case, which is the former Virginia Governor Bob McDonald, where the Supreme Court basically threw out his conviction. This has now been in the last sort of decade or so. There are a number of cases, two decades. There are a number of cases, including the Enron Jeff Skilling case, where they invalidated the honest services statute. Like there are a lot of examples where the Supreme Court has really pushed in this direction of not having a strong of a, a federal presence in corruption. But let me just say one thing on the way that this case was prosecuted. This is strange. I mean, the way that it was done, and I, you know, prosecutors can be creative and they can be aggressive. And this is an example of they use federal civil rights laws, they use a federal property, property fraud crime, and they use wire fraud, which again relies on this underlying idea of fraud. Those fraud cases clearly require money or property. This was a stretch under those laws. There were no examples of these laws having been used the way they were used in this prosecution. And so I think we should be clear in saying that what the Supreme Court has said and done, there is nothing really surprising in many ways because these statutes have not been used in this way. And so I just point that out to say there is a lot that we should be talking about in terms of the Supreme Court's decision and where it leaves us on political corruption prosecutions. But we should also, I think, acknowledge that this was an unusual prosecution uh, for many reasons, including how it was charged, including they cooperated, in my view, the ringleader. Um, usually you don't cooperate the sort of person who's you know, really Wildstein. calling David the shots, Wildstein. David Wildstein. They did not prosecute Bill Stepien, who was is now in the Trump White House. He was close to one of the people who was prosecuted. He was involved in some of these conversations. So there are a lot of fair questions about how the case was prosecuted. It was it was unusual, right? And look, it's an unusual look, set of we facts. We discussed it without revealing too much. You know, when I was the United States Attorney, when this case was brought, and I have great respect for the New Jersey U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, we would have our own discussions and without knowing all the facts and all the circumstances and not having been in the grand jury and not having done the deep legal analysis that's required before you bring, you know, an aggressive and somewhat creative case like this, I don't know what we would have done. But I guess the question is, and I wonder what you think about this, sort of the kinds of dilemmas that I wrestle with in my book and in my law school class, what is the right thing to do when you have evidence of misconduct? And again, the Supreme Court 
agrees. Corruption, abuse of power, deception on the part of very high level officials, perhaps all the way up to and including the governor of the state, that among other things, jeopardize the safety of people in the state. So it's bad. It's not a question of like, well, was it bad or was it not bad? It was bad. It was an abuse of power. The local folks aren't going to do anything about it. To what degree, as a general philosophical matter, ethical matter, to what degree can you try to use existing statutes that are imperfect to the case and try to shoehorn your case into that statute? Because you are in good faith caring about the public good and public safety. I, don't, I think there's no right answer to that. But I think well, that's a I question Well, I think this that is the right question. No, this is the right question, which is there's this huge systemic question here of there's a problem that happens. There's something that happens that should never have happened, that people's lives are, you know, disrupted. It's the first week of school. It's Yom Kippur. It's the anniversary of 9-11. There's no... I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the Cafe Insider podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid .edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work.